Well, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. We will continue our study of Paul's letter to the Galatians. One thing's for sure, when we get done with this, we will have no doubts of the gospel. <laughs> we'll be a gospel-saturated people more than we already are, praise the Lord. So what a great letter this is, and just uh, how, how central the gospel is, and how focused this letter is on the gospel. And as we've titled this, The Guarding of the Gospel, Galatians is, Paul is guarding the gospel, therefore we will emulate him. We too will guard the gospel with all that we have, and it is worth it all, for it is the only message that saves the sinner and sanctifies saints. So we want to be sure to be faithful as Paul to this gospel. So if you would turn to Galatians, if you haven't already, chapter 1. And before we read the text from 11 to 24, it's a lengthy text, I should like to pray just for a moment here to set our minds. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of having the living word in our own language and to understand it. We thank you for your indwelling Holy Spirit to teach us. And as we open this book and study this passage, I would ask, Father, that you would press these truths deep down into our souls and have it influence our every thought and word and deed and help us to be faithful to the gospel of God. Help us to protect it and guard it and to proclaim it and to live it. May we be a gospel-centered, gospel-saturated people. So come and bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we continue to follow the Apostle Paul today in his guarding of the gospel, the gospel of God, as we've titled this. The gospel is God's invention, not ours. In our section, verse 11 through 24, we want to see that it's also a part of a larger section that goes all the way to the end of chapter 2. And as we read through this section, 11 through 24, and into chapter 2 in the following weeks, we will see and notice here that this is primarily autobiographical. This is the Apostle Paul telling his story, if you will. In fact, from 11 to 24 in our text today, the first person personal pronoun, I, me, or my, is used at least 16 times. So it's peppered with the personal pronouns. This is his story. This is his testimony. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 2, his personal story will have taken up one-fifth of the whole letter to Galatians. 20% of this letter is personal testimony. Now, why does he feel the need to do this? Why such a focus on his personal experience? Is he narcissistic? Is it just about him and that's all he cares about? Well, as you know from previous studies, that Jewish false teachers came into this region, into these churches, which were primarily Gentile, and they were peddling their false gospel, their lies, their legalism they were bringing to these churches. They taught that you must keep the law of Moses in addition to believing in Jesus to be saved. So his personal testimony is going to show the difference of that, and that his gospel that he preached 
did not come from man. It didn't come from his own invention. It actually came from God. And so God is the author of this gospel. And God is also, we will see in, later on in this text, God is the authenticator. He authenticates the gospel and he's the author. He's the source and he proves that. And we'll see how he does that. But let's read from verse 11 to 24, shall we? The Word of God says in verse 11, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, called me through His grace, was pleased, verse 16, to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later I went up to Jerusalem, became acquainted with Cephas, who's also Peter, of course, and stayed with him fifteen days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. 23, but only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they finally were glorifying God because of me. Now, as you notice, so much personal pronoun I and me and my, as we said over 16 times here, this is a personal testimony of Paul. This is his personal experience. And he will go on even further in chapter 2, and we'll see this in the weeks ahead. But why does he feel the need to do so? Why, why does he spend so much time on his personal experience here? It's because of the false teachers that were coming against him. Acts 15.1 says that the, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They, these Judaizers, these Pharisees and, and these strict traditionalists, strongly opposed the gospel which the Apostle Paul preached, which, by the way, is the same gospel any true apostle preached, any, because as we learned last week, there's only one true gospel. So his they went after him and said that his gospel was not the same, it was different. They rejected the gospel of grace. They rejected Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone. In fact, they despised that. They hounded his every step on his missionary journeys. And these false teachers, who were Jews coming into the churches, were claiming to believe in Jesus and believe in grace, but they were bringing circumcision and the laws of Moses and the, and the deeds of the law into addition to the gospel of grace. And they were very persuasive and very good at their evil craft. In fact, if you go to chapter 4 with me, a couple places to show you just how persuasive these men were. In verse 9, notice, But now you, that you have come to know God, 4.9, or rather to be known by God, 
How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Verse 10, 11, For I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Perhaps you're not really saved. That's how persuasive these false teachers were. In chapter 5, notice please in verse 7, You were running well. You were doing good. Who hindered you? Who got in your way from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you in verse 8. And back in chapter 3, which one of my favorite verses, I love how he says, I've used this a few times over the years, and I just, I I like it because it says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? (laughs) To see someone bewitched is to be under a spell. Who has bewitched you? That's how persuasive these Jewish false teachers were that brought legalism against the true grace of God. They were so persuasive that Paul says, Who bewitched you? Before whose eyes, in verse 1, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Verse 2, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just answer me that. That's how persuasive these guys are. And false teachers are very persuasive. Good false teachers, if that's the the way to put it. (laughs) Those who are good at being evil and selling their wares, they're very persuasive. Now, these are true believers as a whole, right? He's writing to the church. Now, why then, think of this, the, the, the wares, the product of the false teachers of this persuasion are legalism. Law of Moses, Old Testament, Old Covenant, Jewish religion, Judaism. Why is legalism in any form so effective? Why is it so effective? Because it appeals to my flesh. And the sinful flesh is naturally, and you know this, is bent towards legalism. That's my natural disposition, apart from grace, is to be legalistic. That's just how it is. Because it's rooted in pride. It's rooted in pride. Works righteousness is diametrically opposed to faith righteousness. It's as far away as the east is from the west. It in no way can co-mingle because they are diametrically opposed. They repel one another. Faith righteousness is on this polar end and works righteousness is on this end. Legalism appeals to my flesh, to my pride. Faith, think of this, is to be reliant upon another for your right standing before God. Faith is to be reliant on another for your right standing before God. Faith is reliant upon grace. It's like two sides of a coin. But works is to trust in yourself for righteousness. Luke 18, 9, you remember the publican, the the Pharisee, and the the tax collector standing in the temple praying Luke 18, 9 says this, And he, Jesus, also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. That's how the Pharisees thought themselves, right? They saw themselves as righteous because of what they did and what they didn't do. And they, and they, they saw that what they did was earning merit before God. In fact, it was opening the door into God's presence. 
because of their effort, because of their, the way they did things. The Judaizers that are hounding Paul and in the, the backdrop of Galatians here were basically saying to the Gentiles, if you want to become righteous before God, if you want to become saved, you must become like a Jew. You must become a proselyte. You must be a keeper of the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law. But this is absolutely wrong. And not only is it wrong, it's damning. As the previous section, verses 6 through 10, have already shown us, right? Anybody that preaches another gospel, Paul says, go to hell. That's a pretty strong word. That's the only persons that he tells that to. Because that's where they belong. To taint and pollute the gospel of grace earns your place in hell. That's how evil it is. Let us not lose track. This is not a little thing. To tweak the gospel of grace is to earn your way to hell. Okay? And so Paul stands up to write Galatians. This is his apologetic. This is his... Um, his defense and his guarding of the, of the true gospel. Galatians 2.21 I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Do you see the importance? Even that, that, that's Galatians 2.21. The, the, the seriousness of legalism is to then make Christ's death something foolish. He didn't really need to do that. He was a good college try, good effort. Hey, I sure like the devotion. But you know what? He didn't really have to go that far, you know, because I can do some things that earn my way to heaven. So what are you doing that for? Right? That's what you're saying to Jesus. It'd be like looking, to, it'd be like looking at Christ as he hung there on the cross while he's still breathing. Look him in the eye and say, you know what? You really messed this one up because you didn't have to do this. You misinterpreted the will of God and you went to the cross. What a fool you are. Is that what you want to say to Christ? That's what you're saying when you tweak the gospel of grace. When you add to the gospel of grace, like all these other religious systems out here. By the way, there's only two religions, right? Gospel of grace is true. Everything else is works-oriented. No matter what you want to put on it, from Catholicism to J-Dub cults or anything else you want to throw under there. There's only two religions in the world. One is the grace of God, and the other is human's works. Merit. Okay? To be human merit-oriented, to be relying on yourself, is to say Christ died needlessly. Boy, that makes me shudder. That makes me weak in the knees, actually. I, I mean, can you imagine that? I, and I'm sure I'm guilty, because my natural disposition is that way, and it takes grace to bring me back this way, you see? Faith is a gift of grace. It's not a natural component of the fallen person. It's a gift of grace even. Faith is a gift of grace. If, if any part of our salvation, now think of this, if any part of your salvation is from any part of your own work, deed, or effort of obedience to God, then Christ died as a fool. If Christ provides 99%, that's giving a pretty good chunk, right? I'll give him 99%. If he provides 99% of the righteousness needed to be accepted in God's presence, and you provide a measly 1%, that's a false system. And Paul says you should go to hell. 
you should be under the curse of God. You know why that's so? Because you and I have no righteousness of our own to offer. Uh, Isaiah, what is it, 63, the filthy rag text, right? Our righteousness are as filthy rags. That's not very good. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus provides now 100% of the righteousness needed for salvation. You and I provide absolutely nothing to it. In fact, I've heard it said, the only thing we do bring is what? Our sin. That's all we bring to the table. We have no righteousness of our own. So you can see then, in rejecting Paul's message of grace, as the Judaizers were, by adding works, they're rejecting this, the gospel of God. They also are attacking, they did, his person. That is, they tried to convince the Galatians that Paul wasn't a legitimate apostle because, of course, he wasn't one of the twelve. He wasn't there in the gospel record. So why would we say he's a true apostle? He's not one of the twelve. Therefore, he isn't genuine. Therefore, his message isn't legit. He's a self-appointed messenger with a false message of his own design. He didn't get this from God. That's just pious thought, pious language he uses to, to try to trick you. Somebody taught him this, but it wasn't one of the twelve. So don't listen to him. Now, from the day that he was walking on this planet, Paul, and the day that he was in prison writing letters, receiving these accusations, to this day he receives the same accusations. There are people that do not like what he writes about the gospel, about roles of women in the church, um, or anything else he says that is contrary to cultural... Um, what they want the culture to receive and they want to bring it into the church, they will, and you know this, right? They abandoned Paul. Oh, he wasn't one of the 12, right? He's a Johnny-come-lately. He's a self-appointed. He is forever receiving that accusation. Galatians is just where this started here that's a record. And he's writing then to defend the gospel of God by defending himself. Okay, this is what he's doing here in this section of 111 into the end of chapter 2. Now, as we saw last week, Paul was amazed that these Christians were choosing to follow these false teachers. Back in 1.6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Wow. These people were willing to choose these false teachers and they were willing to go back to the bondage of legalism. They were willing to go back to the bondage of an outer form. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, listen, it says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Don't budge and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. You see, but these people were willing to put themselves back under the yoke of slavery. They had been set free by the gospel of grace. But to do anything outside as a form of legalism that earns merit before God is to put a yoke around your neck of slavery. You're bound to that. There's no freedom in that. 
Now, our passage here in 11 through 24, Paul's compelled to defend his ministry by focusing on his personal experience, not because it's about him necessarily, but since he is the chosen apostle to the Gentiles, the one to take the gospel to them, he's forced to defend himself for the sake of the gospel. Do you understand what we're saying there? Um, It's not always right or good to defend yourself. But when it impacts the gospel and its validity, then you defend yourself. Because it's not about you, ultimately, it's about the message that you're bringing, you see. And so the Apostle Paul is forced to defend his character himself because of the gospel. That's what he's really defending is the gospel. He's forced to defend himself. Now, Gentile salvation and the glory of God is at stake in this letter. That's why he's so... agitated to defend the gospel of grace as we know delivers from the curse of the law it delivers from bondage to sin it delivers from bondage to the law it delivers from the bondage to the sinful flesh it places the believer in freedom in the place of freedom in christ now paul will speak here how he came to know the gospel the source of the gospel, and how he came to preach the gospel, which is the proof of that claim. In other words, God is the author, and God is the, authentic- the, the authenticator. He will prove it. Paul is saying how I came to know this gospel and how I came to preach this gospel is what he's going to show us here. And that's going to then tell us, or let's, let's back up a step, this is going to encourage the Galatians why they should continue to believe the gospel that Paul preached. Don't abandon the gospel that Paul preached. Why, 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 why should you and I abandon all for this Christ and even risk our life for this message? Paul is going to show us. Why should you and I believe and proclaim the gospel which Paul preached? Why should we do the same? Or, or, or we could say, how about this? In, in, in studying what Paul's laying out here, by grace, why will we guard with our life the gospel of grace? Why will we not compromise in this culture which will come against us harder and harder from every angle? Why will we not compromise by grace to uphold this message? It's because this message is from God and this message is the only message that saves God is the author, verse 11 and 12, and God is the authenticator, 13 through 24. Now look how he begins here in verse 11. He says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. He says, I would have you know. He uses this phrase a lot in his letters, and he's, 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 it's his way of saying, I want to be very clear to you here. I want you to not be ignorant. Don't be ignorant of this reality. So let me get your attention. Be clear-headed here. Now listen to what I'm saying. And he says in verse 11, what is it he doesn't want him to be ignorant of? Brethren, that the gospel that was preached by me is not according to man. It's interesting that he does not deny their brothers. He's writing to Christians. Okay, Brethren, he considers them fellow believers. There are those who responded to Paul's preaching on his missionary journey through through the area there when he was going through the, the, now think of this he calls them brethren even though we learn from the other pla- other passages in our in the book of galatians that they've come under the false teachers bewitching under the false teachers persuasion but they're still called brothers 
True believers are susceptible to error. Or every warning in your New Testament is a waste of time. If you can't be deceived, then every warning in the New Testament is a waste of time. Okay? We must pay close attention. We must guard against false gospels. The false gospels damn sinners and corrupt saints. The, the false gospels keep you and I from the depth of joy that comes from knowing the truth and walking with Christ. And it keeps us from serving him to the extent that we could serve him according to the freedom that's found in Christ. False gospels distract us from a full devotion to Christ. But look at what he says here. I want you to not be ignorant. I want you to know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. He begins right there. He says, this isn't, the source of this gospel is not fallen man. The true gospel of grace which Paul preached to them, which they believed, which they, by which they were saved, is not the invention of man. It doesn't originate from man. The fallen human mind and heart isn't the source of this message. Think about it. The, the fallen man would never come up with the message of the gospel. <laughs> right? Such a God-centered message. Fallen man would never go there. In fact, you can't get there from here, right? He has to come to you. You can't go there, right? The human mind, which has spawned, think of this, every other religious system in the world, other than the truth, is a work system. The human earns its way towards God, or the deity's acceptance. The fallen man's designed it that way. Your right standing before God is based entirely on your own merits, that which you do. The message of God is quite the contrary. It is of pure grace. It is the work of God on your behalf and is a free gift to be received by faith. We are the blind beggars who merely open our hands to receive the morsel from the Lord. That's the design of God. We are like the many blind ones that are, in the, that are mentioned in the gospel records who cried out to the Lord because they were helplessly blind and they could do nothing for themselves and they cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. That's the sinner that recognizes they have no hope and they cry out to a God of grace. The fallen man designs everything other than that. Now, he's already shown us in verse 4 of chapter 1. Look at this gospel here. He says in verse 4, Who gave himself for our sins so that we might, he might rescue, deliver us from this present evil age. And this was according to the will of our God and Father. What a glorious word. Glorious word. How about Galatians 2.16? He says here, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Do you think he has any problem with what he's trying to say in that verse? He says it 16 different times. Everywhere you slice it, it says the same thing. Justification by faith. Justification by faith. Right? This, is the, this is the message of God. 
The message that Paul is, is, the emphasis of Paul in our text, 11 and 12, is he doesn't want the Galatians to be ignorant, even though the false teachers are coming against Paul and against his gospel. He says, don't be ignorant. The source of my message is not man. It is God. You see, so how does, how does Paul come to know this, this word? How does he come to know that the message he has is not from man? Well, he wasn't in a class being taught it. He wasn't in college. He didn't even go to seminary, really. Right? It was kind of a personal seminary, maybe. Um, he wasn't a disciple. He was a disciple of Galileo and learned Judaism very well. Very well. But the message of grace did not come from Gamaliel. Right? Um, but look at what it says in verse 11. Actually, verse 12 of Galatians 1. For neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Wow. The word revelation, apocalypto, the book of Revelation is, comes after this. Apocalypsis means to uncover, it means to remove the shroud. It's to remove that which impedes a, a, a vision of something is to take it's like the artist that puts the sheet over the um the what do you call the statues in rome you know um or something yeah something that 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 they've created and they're waiting for the day of presentation and then they remove the curtain the shroud to show what's been hiding that's to apocalypto that's to uncover you see, how did Paul come to know the gospel of grace? It was by divine uncovering, divine revelation. He did not read it in a book. He did not learn it from man. It didn't come from his own source. It came from heaven. It came from heaven. This is what he's saying. God is the author of this gospel. Amazing. That which is otherwise unknowable has been made known to Paul. And notice what it says in verse 12. It says a revelation of Jesus Christ. It could be either or, or both of these things. A revelation which comes from Christ, a revelation about Jesus Christ, it's probably both. It came from him and it's about him. He, re he reveals to Paul this good news about Jesus Christ himself. And it was divinely uncovered, divinely made known, divinely revealed. God is making known to Paul the truth about Jesus Christ and the gospel, salvation, how people are saved, who is Jesus Christ. And where does this revelation take place? In the mind. It's in the mind. You see, the source of Paul's message is God himself. He's preaching only that which was shown to him by divine revelation. Since Paul was not one of the original apostles, he wasn't there to hear the words of Jesus, but yet the resurrected Lord showed him, showed him, and came to speak to him so that he heard the words of Christ. And the resurrected Lord showed him the things that he taught the original. This is who I am and what I've come to do. Wow. Now the emphasis here is that Paul's message... It's not different than the original apostles. And we'll find that out in chapter 2. Because he goes there and says, here's what I'm preaching. Is it the same that you guys are preaching? And they say, yes. So this is why Paul is, is, is refuting the error and defending the one true gospel, that the gospel he preached all around the emperor, the empire is the same gospel the original 12 preached. Because the source is the same. 
even though Paul wasn't with the twelve. You see? It was divinely inspired, divinely shown. This is what he's always telling people. And ever since he told people that, he, he has opponents saying, no, nah, that's not right. No, you made it up. No, it, it's, it's, it's exactly the same as, as John's gospel, if you will. Now, here in Paul's message, is, is, it's not different than the, the original apostles, but what it's emphasizing is that he came about it independently. That's what he's, you see, because it's God who's teaching him. He came about it independent of the other 12, even though it's the very, very same gospel. He received it. Now think of what we learned from 1 Corinthians 11 about the Lord's table. Did not, was, was Paul at the Last Supper? No, but listen to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. How did Paul come to learn about the details of the Lord's table? The resurrected Christ revealed it to him. How cool is that? And then Paul says, I'm just going to parrot what I learned from the Lord. Right? Why should you believe in the Apostle Paul's gospel? Why should you believe the 13 epistles of the Apostle Paul? Because it came from Jesus Christ. And to reject Paul's to reject Jesus Christ. That's why it is a big deal. We will not do that here. We will stand on his epistles as the word of God. He learned them from Jesus Christ and parroted it to us. We are blessed to have it in our language, and we will defend this by grace to our life. Right? Whatever he writes on. If you don't like women in ministry, you deal with God, man. You don't like the, the sexual things, you deal with God. Paul's not some, some wacko, legalistic fundamentalist he is a divinely inspired man called by grace to represent God and deal with it you deal with it because it's true this is what he's saying the gospel is not mine it's not men's it's from God I learned it from a revelation of Jesus Christ wow 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he says the same thing. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And what is it that you received? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, Paul heard about his crucifixion, but he did not know the theology of the cross. Right? There's a lot of unbelievers that can, can say, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but they don't have the theology of the cross. We have the theology of the cross. You can watch, you can watch Mel Gibson's movie and the depiction of the crucifixion, which is, boy, is bloody, yeah? And you can say, wow, that guy was tough. He took a beating, but he finally died, man. Good try, right? But the Christian watches that and says, that was done on my behalf and because of my sins. You see, how do you come to know that? By divine revelation. It's uncovered, you see. That's good stuff. That's really good stuff. Now, how does Paul come to know this? Well, like the original apostles, listen to these texts. The Holy Spirit is active in Paul's life. Again, this is the foundation of why, why we trust in, in Paul's gospel is because the gospel of Paul comes from God, okay? So to, 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 to follow Paul and believe what Paul writes is to, to follow in the steps of God and to obey God. Now listen to what he says. In, the, the, in John 14, 26, Jesus is talking to the original, but listen here. But the helper, 
the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, pre-crucifixion, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, obviously, Paul wasn't there to have things reminded to him, but he is a recipient of the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is making known to Paul these truths. Okay? John 16, 13 through 14. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose, make known to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. How does the Apostle Paul come to know the gospel? By revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the work of the Holy Spirit as well. The Spirit revealing this to him. In 1 Corinthians 2, 13 through 14, listen please. For to us, says Paul, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The depths of God? That's pretty massive. Can you plumb the depths of God? Only the Spirit of God can. And this is the spirit of whom he speaks of. The spirit who can plumb the depths of God has revealed to me the things of God. Man, that's why you don't go from here to there. He comes here, right? And then he says, for who, who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. No, now we have received already Talking about the apostles, the spirit, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. See, it's the work of the spirit. The revelation of Jesus Christ is not disassociated from the revealing work of the, of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. How does Paul, how can Paul say, the gospel I preach, you must follow, believe, and trust, because there's only one gospel, and the gospel that I preach is not mine, it's not from men, it came from God. Man, that gets me riled, gets me excited. I like truth, you know, I, I, I don't like gray areas, I don't do well with, yeah, I'm trying to figure this out. I like black and I like white. That's just how I am, right? It's simpler that way, I like it that way. Um, I like what Paul's saying. He says, just believe what I'm saying because it comes from God. <laughs> right? It comes from God. So to reject Paul's message is to reject God. He already said in Galatians 1.1, look at it again, 1.1, Paul, an apostle, and he uses the negative first, not sent from men or through the agency of men. Men had nothing to do with it, but contrast through the channel, Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So I ask you this, are you right now believing in the gospel of grace? Is this the joy of your heart? Do you believe in the gospel of grace? The gospel which Paul writes, the gospel which Paul promotes, the gospel of God. Are you, are you believing in that gospel? You should because it comes from God. And if it comes from God, get this, it leads to God. If it comes from God, it leads to God. If it comes from man, it don't lead to heaven. It might lead to Bakersfield or some other hellish place, but it ain't going to heaven. <laughs> Isn't that right, brother? 
Yeah, <laughs> he's been to Taft, so he knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> Do you understand that? That's why we, we need to discern and be sure that that which we are following and that what's being preached here comes from this book that comes from a man who says that which I've written and that which I'm telling you was revealed to me by God. If we don't preach this, then we're not preaching the message that comes from God. We're, we're only echoing what, he's, what he was revealed, you see. That's the way of it. That's how God's designed it. He has, des- isn't it crazy? He has, he has designed the, 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 the church's existence through the foolishness of preaching. I mean, you're sitting there listening to me, right? But God can use that and has ordained that as the means by which justification and sanctification and finally glorification happens. I don't know about you, that makes me nine foot tall, tall and bulletproof. Right? Praise God. <laughs> right? But that's so wonderful. So the message that Paul here is saying in defending the gospel, he's defending himself at the same time by saying the message that I am going around preaching is not mine. I didn't read it in some old crazy book over in a cave somewhere. It came to me from God. It came to me from God. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It gets even gooder here. Right? As exciting as that two verses are to me, I, I like this here. But it gets gooder. 13 to 24. Um, God is the authenticator. He's not only the author... But he authenticates, he validates that which he has authored. In other words, Paul, that's really good, Paul. That sounds great. But how do I know that you're not pulling my leg? Right? Are you sure you're not stretching that blanket a little, a little wide, as the old cowboy would say? Right? Are you sure you're not doing that? Are you sure it's not that uh, the wine was out in the sun too long and made you a little tipsy? Right? You got a revelation from Jesus? Really? Well, let's see what he says. Look at what he goes to to prove that indeed this message did come from God by divine revelation. Verse 13, he says here, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. Very key. What he's going to do here now, stopping there, in verses 13 through 14, he's going to, be, he's going to speak of his pre-conversion. When he gets to 15 and 16, he's, a, he's going to speak of his conversion. And then 17, I think it is, and all the way to the end of the chapter, he's going to emphasize post-conversion. Those three things are going to be how God authenticates the gospel that he gave to Paul. This is really awesome. And he starts in 13 and 14 with how Paul was, his pre-conversion, as he says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. He was famous, Paul was. They have heard of his former manner of life. Wow. He reminds them of his experience. God is going to validate this claim through Paul's conversion. Here he says, my, my manner of life beforehand in Judaism. Judaism is the Jewish religion. It's related to the Pharisees, if you will. This is, this is the people that added 603 laws to the law of Moses. Moses didn't quite get it done enough, so they added their own 600 of them. 
right? And what it means to live on, on the Sabbath and what you can do and how far you can walk and what you can eat and can't eat and how to give a tithe of seeds and all that stuff, right? To be righteous. It's crazy stuff. But Paul says, my former manner of life in Judaism, this is amazing, the, these details that, that he's going to lay out here, they will prove and explain how unlikely, think of this, how unlikely it was that Paul would convert to Christianity. This is how God is going to validate that the gospel was a gift of grace and revelation because he's going to say, this is who I was beforehand. It's almost impossible for me to convert to Christ by sitting down and talking to you. He would cut your head off first, right? I'm going to listen to you tell me about this false messiah. That's fascinating. Look what he says. He says here in, in 13, former manner of life in Judaism. Paul's main point was to show that there's nothing in his religious background, <clears throat> excuse me, and pre-conversion life that could have any way prepared him for the positive response to the gospel. Judaism, as we said, is this strict adherence to, 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 uh, to a system of belief. It was filled with Jewish customs and traditions that they made up. It doesn't come from Moses. They added to Moses. And these are the men who so strongly opposed Jesus Christ when he was on the planet and eventually were part of his crucifixion. They saw Jesus as a huckster, a deceiver, a false prophet, prophet, deserving of death, and Paul's a part of them. Not only was he a part of them, he was a superstar. He was their foremost student, you see. Notice how he describes his life beforehand in verse 13. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure. Wow. To persecute comes from a, a term that means to chase down. It means to hunt. It means to pursue with the, with the idea of doing harm. Do you, know, do you know what a kimono dragon is? It's, this, it's, about, it's, it's a huge little dinosaur-looking thing, right? Um, on an island, it's not the quickest animal on the island. The little deer is. But you know how that kimono dragon gets the deer? It never stops. It just runs like a wolf. And it'll go for days until eventually that little deer plays out and the Cremona dragon overtakes it. That is such a great picture to me of the word, the Greek term, persecute. The Apostle Paul, like a Cremona dragon, hunted down Christians. This is his manner of life before he was saved. I pursued Christians, he says in verse 13, I hunted them. And, and the, the tense of the verb, the, can I use it without being accused of anything other than just trying to work hard? Um, <laughs> imperfect tense, right? It, it, so it sees a past act with, with, that's not been finished. So it's telling a story from the, from the perspective of being there. And what he's saying is Paul constantly never stopped hunting, persecuting, chasing down Christians. He, it wasn't like a two-day thing to him. It was an everyday, all-day thing to him. This, and this is what he says is a part of his mannerism in Judaism. It's part of his religion that he hunted them down. And then it says there at the end of verse 13, notice what it says, beyond measure and tried to destroy the church of God. 
He calls it, interesting too, he calls it the church of God. It's a singular whole. The ecclesia, the called out ones which belong to God, I tried to destroy. Wow. He was not a good dude. He was a bad dude. He made Bin Laden look like uh, Mother Teresa, right? Seriously, he was a bad dude. He was a terrorist. He was a proud terrorist, right? Um, he, he, the word destroy is, is used of soldiers that ravage a city, break down the walls, burn it to the ground. That's the word used for destroy. It also is in the imperfect tense, which shows Paul's constant, incessant activity was hunting Christians for the purpose of destroying them. My goodness. He was an intense human being. Very intense. So he, tried, he persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, tried to ravage it, tried to extinguish it. Listen to, to his testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, 13. I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That's fascinating. His own depiction of himself is that he was blasphemer. Who do you blaspheme? Primarily is God. It's to slander people. It's to slander God. He says persecutor, a hunter, and then a violent aggressor is where we get our word sadistic from. Paul says, I took great... What sadism is, I take joy in causing harm. The apostle Paul says, I took joy in seeing Christians suffer at my hand. Yeah, he's not, he's not a good dude. Remember when St Stephen was stoned in Acts 7... Listen to Acts 7, 59 through 8, 3. They went along stoning Stephen, the first Christian martyr, as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul, who is our Paul, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. Now listen, but Saul began, that means he started and continued, ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He put them into prison. I'd say the gospel's pretty powerful. Wouldn't you? Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this. This gospel message I go around preaching didn't come from me. I didn't learn it from any man. I was shown by a revelation of Jesus. In fact, you remember how I used to live as a, as a Judaizer? I was such a religious zealot. I hunted like a Komona dragon Christians. <laughs> I don't know if you knew about Kimono. And I tried to destroy them. I tried to ravage them. Because I thought I was doing the right thing. He was so religious. He tried to destroy Christianity because he saw Christianity as a direct assault on his ancestral traditions. 
That's how passionate he was. It's kind of like guys who are willing to fly an airplane into a tower. That's pretty passionate. A little misguided, but pretty passionate. The Apostle Paul is like that. Amazing. He's willing to go after it. Listen to his testimony in Acts 26. Listen to this. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing or hunting them even to foreign cities. Wow. That's an intense individual. Look where he goes in verse 14. And I, not only was I doing verse 13... But I was a superstar. I worked so hard at this. He says, I was advancing in Judaism. I didn't just stay sterile. I wasn't content with just being one of the boys. He says, I was advancing. He was gaining, going up the ladder. Right? And notice what he says, beyond many of my contemporaries. He's the first among them all. Among all my countrymen, fellow Jews. Notice his Notice his... His uh, intensity rooted in the second half of verse 14. He says, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. It has nothing to do with Moses. It has everything to do with Judaism and their view, their wrong interpretations. But he is extremely zealous, advancing in Judaism, beyond, far beyond contemporaries. He, he is a passionate follower of his pharisaical traditions. Amazing. Amazing. These ancestral traditions refers to the body of oral teachings about the Old Testament law that came to have equal authority with the law itself. Commonly known as the Halakha, his collection of, this collection of Torah interpretations, Torah is the law, became a fence around God's revealed law and it, it all but hid from the view the truth. It's like I've heard it said about Catholicism. You put so much harness on there you can't see the horse. Right? It covers it. And therefore it becomes something other than what the truth is. You see, over a period, listen again about this the Holocaust, this, this, this ancestral traditions, over a period of several hundred years, it had expanded into a mammoth accumulation of religious, moral, legal, practical, and ceremonial regulations that defied comprehension, much less compliance. Over 600 rules. You remember what Jesus called the Pharisees? What's, what was Jesus' favorite term for the Pharisees as a whole? Hypocrite. Hypocrites. Blind guides leading the blind. He pronounced eight woes against them in Matthew 23. Woe to you. If the Lord's pronouncing a woe on you, that's not a good thing. That's kind of like Paul did in Galatians 1, eh? Let them be anathema. <laughs> wow. John 5 says it like this. 
Do not think that I will accuse you, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believe, listen to this, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Moses wrote about Christ. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see? So Paul here is saying that the message I received by revelation, God is the source of this gospel. God will authenticate this claim in this gospel because I remind you of who I was before I was converted. I was a radical religious terrorist that saw Christianity. This gospel is a direct assault on my ancestral traditions. And I was so fiery for it, I cut off everybody's head, metaphorically, right? Whoever got in the way. But, but, Look at verse 15. Don't you love Paul's strong contrast? But God, but God authenticates his gospel. Paul doesn't validate himself. Paul doesn't validate the gospel. God does. This is so glorious. This is why he preaches the gospel. Verse 15 says, But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased. Wow, God who set me apart from my mother's womb. What does he mean by this? The word separated here is from a word which means to mark off with a boundary or a line. It's a word used for the horizon, the demarcation between the sky and the earth, that horizon there. This is the word that's used. When I was marked off, off from a boundary or a line it it, it means to place a a limitation upon to fix limits around It, it, it means it has this idea of a boundary of a limit of a frontier it's it's to set limits upon beforehand when you add the little preposition pro pro before this it's translated in other places predestinate Rooted in this, Paul is saying, God, who had set me apart, marked me off from my mother's womb. He's not talking about physical birth. He's talking about being marked off before his physical birth. Okay? This is the sovereignty of God. It's used in Romans 1.1 when Paul says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, and then this, set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart. It's not the word for holy. It's a whole different idea. To be marked off. The idea is this. He who set me apart is the one who devoted me to a special purpose from before my birth and before I had any impulses or principles of my own. Before I entered this world, God had marked me off. Isn't that one of our favorite doctrines? It certainly is mine. It's given me a lot of trouble over the years, but you know what? I love it. The sovereignty of God. You see, God is authenticating the gospel, and it's rooted in his marking off of Paul before he was even born for a purpose, you see. Paul then is stating this. 
that he was set apart and devoted by God to apostleship before he was even born. Before he was born. Now notice, in the context here, Paul is proving that his gospel is from God. His gospel's the same as the other apostles because there's only one gospel. But he come about it independently of them. And it, it, it happens that way because of the sovereignty of God. He marked him off for this purpose. Look at what else it says in verse 15. It says, but when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, second act of grace, called me through his grace. The one previously set apart for God's purpose beforehand is called by God to himself. This is a gracious call. It says called according to his grace. This is a, a call based on grace, based on unmerited favor. It's not based on human effort or quality or performance. It's actual. It is actual. And it's simply according to God's good pleasure. God said Come. This is, this is what we like to call the effectual call. The call is effectual. That, in other words, it always accomplishes what it was set forth to do because God predetermined that it would happen. He marked off Paul from in the womb to be an apostle and to take the message of grace to the Gentiles. And in history, Acts 9, God called him. He said, if I could whistle like my wife. Hey, Pablo. Venga atrás, ándale. Right? I don't know how the Ruskies would say that, but the Spanish would say, Pablo, venga atrás. <laughs> right? This is what he's saying. He called me through his grace. Not through my works. It's through his grace. Amazing. Amazing. Now get this, please. This is what Romans, this is like Romans 9 and 11 and 12. Listen to this. Remember the twins? For, through, for though the twins, Esau and Jacob, were not yet born or had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Before they were born, God had already marked off Jacob for himself and Esau he overlooked. Because it's grace. The older will serve the, the, the older will serve the younger is contrary to culture, but it's in line of grace. That's why he did it. So then, think of this. Since it's according to God's predetermined purpose, his grace, this call of grace, this is known as we have said, his effectual call. It'll always be effective. It will accomplish exactly that which God has intended. His power and his purpose are behind it. Now get this. A wonderful example of what Paul's talking about here that just comes in my brain is this call that came from Jesus outside the tomb of Lazarus. And he yells into a tomb to a dead man and says, Venga <laughs> Come here, right? That's the effectual call. 
That's a great example, literally, physically, of an effectual call that spiritually we've all received at salvation. Paul is saying, I was set apart from the womb for a purpose, devoted unto God, by God, and in history, he called me, come here, come here, by grace, not works, and set me apart to be an apostle. This is why we listen to him. God's authenticating Paul for us. God's seal, God's mark, God's brand is on the apostle, even though he's not one of the twelve, like one untimely born. It's by God's choosing. God never intended Paul to be one of the twelve, or he would have been. <laughs> but he's just as one of the twelve in the sense of he belongs to God. So then, listen to this. That same voice, that same call that awakened Lazarus from the tomb is the same voice that will empty all the tombs in the future. That same voice. It's the same voice that said to Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you hunting me? Right? Paul was chosen before time, set apart, set apart before he was born and called in time to come to Christ, to serve Christ as an apostle. This is very similar to like Jeremiah the prophet. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. That means set apart. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations before you was born. The one who was so intense in his hatred against Jesus and Christians in his defense of Judaism with such passion is now radically changed. Something has happened that cannot be explained other than the miraculous power of grace and the power of God. God will validate by converting this man. Look at verse 16. Notice the actions of God. To reveal his son in me. So reveal. So that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult flesh and blood. God is the one in verse 15. Who set apart and called and revealed. It's just glorious. Think of this. To reveal his son in me. That's the word apocalypto reveals, the same one that was used in verse 12. means to uncover, to make known, reveal. God the Father was pleased to pull back the shroud to uncover the Son. To show Him, the Son, for who He really is and for what, he's, for what He has done. To show His glory. Now think of that. Where does that take place? In me, in me. He says, I made this known in me, not through me and not to me, but in me. He's emphasizing the internal work of God. This is not only the physical appearance of the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, but this is something even more, more special, more beautiful. I haven't seen the resurrected Jesus on the road, but you know what? I know him. I know him every bit as well. 
every bit is, and so do you. How about that? Does it make you arrogant? No, it makes you saved. <laughs> it's because you're saved. Right? The uncovering to the mind, to the heart, to see him through the eye of faith, to see him in, 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 by the supernatural work of God, right? to reveal him in us. Paul says he revealed him in me, to know him personally and intimately. This is the wonderful work of God in the soul of man. This is the light of God that dispels the darkness. This is the life of God that dispels deadness. This is, this is the life of God that, and the light of God that illumines the mind and the soul. This is new life, regeneration, eternal life, transformation, conversion. This is what makes Christianity different. This is, this is God validating the gospel. The, Paul, are, are, have you experienced the gospel? Look at his life. The gospel you preached that came from Jesus, is it real? Look at his life. He's no longer hunting Christians. He's chasing them down to preach with them, to hang out with them. Right? It's amazing. He says this in John 17, 3. Now get this, right? We're talking about revealing the truth, of the true Christ in us, in, in our soul and mind. Eternal life is this, that you may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know him personally and intimately is to have eternal life. Is to be made alive. I can't help to, 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 to hear some of these passages. I'm, yeah, I'm getting closer. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4. And even if our gospel's veiled, shrouded, it's veiled, covered to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds, the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. How do you come to see who Jesus really is? By working really hard? No, by divine illumination. By grace, by grace, I have read so many commentaries by unconverted people because they can study the grammar, but they don't go, they can't go down into the person of Christ. They don't know him. You read that, it's just, this is corn husk. What is this stuff? They don't know Jesus Christ. That is not enough. That's just top surface. Paul is saying, when God who set me apart from my mother's room before time and called me in history to himself by grace was pleased, the good pleasure of God is he uncovered to my mind, my soul, the person of Jesus Christ so that I know him. This is to have eternal life. It's to know him. This is the power of the gospel. Isn't that what Romans 1.16 tells us? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, to the Greek. That's what we preach. That's what, that validates, that authenticates the gospel. And that's the, there's only one gospel. That's why last week, if you have another one, damn you. 
Because what we're talking about here, only one gospel can do this. Only one gospel can do this. Listen to Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. At, at that time, Jesus said, I praise, I love it. I praise you, Father. Jesus to Father. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed, apocalypto, them to infants. How about that? Who determines the level of intelligence, right? Who, who said this is arrogance and pride and this is humility? I'm not going to show them anything, but I'm going to show them. God does by his grace. He, keep, he hides certain things from them and reveals it to them. So do you see, it's not by hard work and digging, digging, digging and coming to study, and you should do all of that, but it's grace and grace and grace that reveals to your heart and mind the reality, the, the realness, the truth of Jesus Christ. That's in the gospel. And you're going to add works to that? Damn you. No. That is not right. Matthew 16. I'm almost done, I think. Matthew 16. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Oh, that's great, Simon. You're the smartest apostle I have. No, that's not what he said. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not apocalypse this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Isn't that something? And Peter's been hanging out with Jesus for a couple years. And he didn't come up to it on his own. You know, I've been watching you, Jesus, and I've come to this conclusion. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. No, he's so stupid, you know, because you can't get there from here. You need divine grace. You need divine revelation. The apostle Paul was acted upon by the Father and revealed to him that this is the truth of the one you're following. He is the son of the living God. Wow. If Peter needs that, I think I probably do too. Right? And it's in the gospel. Okay. Listen to this. Back to our text, and I'll try to wrap this up. To reveal, verse 16, to reveal his son in me, do you see the purpose that God would do such a wonderful act in the soul and mind of Paul is that he would preach who? Preach him, the one that was revealed to him. So isn't it interesting that in verse 11, the gospel that was preached, verse 16 is the same as I might preach him, and the him is the one whom the Father revealed in him. So the, so the Father's, get this, the Father makes known in the mind and soul of Paul who is Christ and what his gospel is and what he's accomplished so that Paul would then go and parrot, echo what the Father revealed to him. Isn't that what we do? That's exactly what we do. We have experienced him. We have tasted of him and found him to be good. We do know the Lord Jesus Christ intimately and personally. And then we go out and preach him. 
We don't preach a system. We don't preach keep these ten wonderful laws or even the four spiritual laws, right? We preach Christ and Him crucified because we have tasted of Him. He says in verse 16, to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. That's His calling. That's His specific calling to preach Christ, the Son of God, amongst the non-Jewish people. He did that. God saves many, many Gentiles throughout the Mediterranean to validate the gospel that Paul says, I I learned from Revelation. Think of this. What if Paul said, I received this message by divine revelation and I go out and preach and nobody follows, nobody gets saved? Are you sure he didn't have bad pizza? (laughs) What were you shown, right? If, if, do you see the validation, the authenticator of the gospel is not Paul. The authenticator is God because he bears fruit. Because the gospel has a purpose. And what is that? To go save sinners. That's what it goes and does. Now, now yeah. So then, look at this, and then I leave you. Among the Gentiles, he goes on from the second half of 16 all the way to 24. I'm just, not much more needs to be said there other than this. Notice the, end, the emphasis of 16 to 24 is that Paul preached the same gospel as the original apostles, but it's independent of them, which proves that he got it from God and not from them. Therefore, listen to Paul. Don't reject him. So he says in the second half of 16, when this happened to me, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, humans. I didn't go to anybody and talk about this. Verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem because that's where the the main guys hang out. To those who were apostles before me, I didn't go there. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Three years went by in 18, and I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed within 15 days. Notice how much time is going by and purposely being stated to show that he's independent of them, yet same. Okay, look at what else he does, verse 19. But I did not see any other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Verse 20, now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God, I'm not lying It's interesting he feels the need to put that in there. Oh, yeah, sure, Paul. No, I'm not lying to you. 21, then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. He's just serving. He's just going and preaching. It's amazing. 22, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea. Judea is south of Cilicia and Syria. The The Jewish churches in Judea still have never cast their eyes on Paul. He didn't go there to be validated by men. He just went to serve Christ because Christ said, now take this message to the Gentiles. Now go preach. And so look at what happens here in verse 23. Those churches in Judea in verse 23, they kept hearing. People keep showing up saying, man, there's this guy named Paul. Man, he's up there. You know, the guy that used to hunt down Christians and kill them. Guess what? He's preaching Christ. Preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And what was the result in verse 24? They were glorifying God because of him. The gospel of God 
is the only message that saves. 6 through 10, as Pastor Max showed last time, anything different is to be damned. You add anything, take away. It's a different gospel, damned. 11 through 24, Paul says, this message, the one message that saves is the same, is the message that I preach. And the message that I preach, I didn't come up with it on my own and nobody taught it to me. I got it from direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, Paul, how's that so? Well, do you remember how I used to live as a Judaizer? Can you explain my conversion in any other way? You think Paul's going to sit down and listen to Peter tell him about Christ? Are you kidding me and convert him? Paul's going to cut his head off. Right? In fact, Paul confronts him in chapter 2 for being a knucklehead. Right? But how is this man converted? By the supernatural power of the gospel that he received by revelation. Verse 15 and 16, the most glorious hub of this is the divine grace, the sovereign grace of God, where he reveals, makes known in the person of Paul, in his mind, he convinces him and shows him the person of Christ. And the purpose he did that, the reason, is that Paul would then go out to the Gentile world and preach this Jewish Messiah. And Paul is, a, is authenticated, validated, because God validates the gospel by saving sinners. He says in chapter 2, he says it like this. In um, verse 7 and 8, he says, But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, non-Jews, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, the Jews, verse 8, for he, Peter, who, or God, who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. Effectually worked means something happened. <laughs> The gospel went out and sinners got saved and churches got planted and churches growed. Men were raised up, pastor elders, and sent out as missionaries. And the Roman culture was radically transformed and changed because God was authenticating the gospel through his people. And we are on the long end of that. We stand on their shoulders. Let us by grace Believe this gospel, protect this gospel, guard this gospel, preach this gospel. Let us not ever compromise it, ever, ever, ever. Let us be taken up with it. Let, us ne let it never become old to you that God has chosen you since before time to be his own child and in history has called you to himself and has freed you from slavery to sin, Satan, and the flesh and has revealed to you his Son. And he's caused you to love him. And it's all of grace. All of grace. So we rejoice. And we say with Paul again that we're not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe, for the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Amen. Amen. Thanks for enduring. Let's pray, I think. Yeah. Well, Father, I thank you for your word. I ask that you will use my effort to, to bless your people. Make us faithful gospelizers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.